Now it's time for News with My Dad, a show where we talk about the news with my dad. And in studio live, playing the role of my dad is, in fact, my dad, the star of our show, Joe Smith. Pop, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm enjoying the beautiful morning. This is a show we talk about the news. We try to talk about the important stuff. Sometimes we talk about the unimportant stuff. When it's unimportant, we try to say so. We take turns. Dad typically takes the first turn. Pop, do you have a shout-out? I do have a shout-out. I'm shouting out this morning for Doug Paget. I assume it's Paget. Maybe it's Paget, who has created. He's an evangelical pastor, and he has created a thing called Vote Common Ground, and he is going around the country in a bus on which is written Vote Common Ground, urging his fellow evangelists to see DDT for what he really is. And he's going to be in our neck of the woods the first week in April, and I'm hoping that we get him on the program. Well, Dad, last night was the Democratic debate in Nevada. And I've got so much to talk about. (laughs) Well, let's get straight to it. Where do you want to start with the debate? What are your overall impressions? Well, first, I want to start with the, the very last thing that happened, and that is that all six candidates were asked if there is nobody with a majority of delegates going into the Milwaukee Convention, would they think that the person who ever had the this most... This might have been the most important question. Yes, that's right. Whoever had the most votes should then get everybody else's votes so there would not be a brokered convention. And five of them said, no, we should follow the process. And what is the process? You have the first ballot, and if nobody wins, then you go to the second ballot. And of course, the big significant thing about that is that that means all the uncommitted delegates, the people call the superdelegates, that's a media term, it's really uncommitted delegates, governors, senators, members of Congress, party chairs, state chairs and party vice chairs and members of the Democratic National Committee get to vote. And five of them said we should follow the process and one of them said no, no, we should do it. And of course that was Bernie because Bernie thinks he's going to go in with a plurality of the delegates. And as Lawrence O'Donnell pointed out, this is precisely the opposite of Bernie Sanders' view four years ago. Exactly. When, he, when, it looked like, <laughs> when it looked like that Hillary Clinton was and ended up being the candidate with the most votes uh, going into the convention when he was asked, well, do, do you think that therefore when you get in the convention that that should just decide the rest? Like, no, no, we got to let the process uh, we got to let the process play out. So, you know, he, he's human. It's the, that's and, the human and, and, strategic and any, Anybody result. who believes that those kinds of decisions are made based on fundamental philosophy <laughs> rather than self You're not behind a veil of ignorance. There, you got to be. Uh, another thing I want to mention, Pete Buttigieg needs to get a better razor. <laughs> he really does need to get That's your second take? Your first take is about the broker convention. The second just, was that people just needed a better he, shave? He, either that or he needs to get... He, he's he just a little teen wolf. A, a, a makeup Maybe the moon was out. Artist. Maybe he was like dunking on people, doing 360 oh. dunks. Well, who won and who lost, everybody? Well, the losers, as far as I was concerned, the losers were just about all of them. 
because it was so contentious and it was so much a catfight that it was embarrassing, just embarrassing. And I think the biggest losers were the questioners, the moderators. They were awful. They were just awful. We got a, we got a chat in, by the way, from our friend Emily Gilliland. She says, you know that they focus grouped Pete's facial hair. But anyway, go on. Why did you think the... Uh, in what ways do you think the moderators were awful? They just asked... First, they asked the same questions they've been asking. They don't know. And, but then also, if they asked a question and the question wasn't answered, they didn't follow it up. They didn't insist on it. They, oh, blah. It was just, hard. It, it seemed to me to be they had several tigers by the tail. There's so much fire going which way. Normally what they do is if anybody criticizes somebody, then they try to go to the person who was just criticized. There was so much critique that if they had done that, that never would have, you know, it, would, it just would have been just kept on passing the breakdance of insults. Somebody would have said, oh, insult somebody, so call on somebody else who they insulted, and that person would have insulted somebody else in the chain reaction. We had only talked about that topic all night. I think Lawrence O'Donnell had one of the best insights into what went on. Okay. Absolutely best. And he's just absolutely right on. There was inordinate, inordinate discussion about health care and about their different health care plans and the back and forth. And, and I just kept praying that Elizabeth Warren would get the thing that I tried to get to her right. for the last debate. Where you essentially said, where you essentially said, we have different plans, but all of us have a plan, and the president doesn't have a plan. Exactly. Yeah. And so and that's, but Lars pointed out that the chances of any one of their health plans going anywhere, at least in the next two years, the two years yeah, I would uh, say this for six are months. nil, absolutely nil, yeah. because you're not going to pass one without 60 votes. You're not going to get more than five and probably no more than three Republican votes which mean you need at least 55 and probably at least 57 Democrats with no backsliders to pass anything just isn't going to happen. Yeah. And the one area where the president has huge ability to act on his or her own foreign policy, how much discussion was there on foreign policy? Yeah, very little. Zilch. Well, no, they criticized Amy Klobuchar for not knowing the president of Mexico. The... Uh, pretty close to zilch it is surprising to me at this point maybe i shouldn't be surprised but it may be disappointing to me that there hasn't been a question such as uh a preamble that like lawrence o'donnell offered that you just offered that i've been offering for months which is listen the difference in their health care plans like they're not going to get to decide it's going to be congress what do you see as the primary differences in what your white house will look like than their white house what will you actually do that's different? It, what you believe, what you'd like to say on this stage isn't the thing that'll be really different. What will actually be different? And exploring that, right? How will you, how will you deal with antitrust regulation that is different? How will, you, how will your uh, creation of new or changing or growing or shrinking or modernizing uh, regulatory apparatus, how will that differ from someone else? Exploring the things the next president will actually do. How, how will your selection of judges di uh, differ with the select? How will your process of selection of judges differ with other candidates? How will you use or not use the NSA, the National Security? That's a big one. And then, yeah, yeah, to get to foreign policy, lots of big foreign policy questions, right, including 
the rush would be sort of an easy one, although not as easy a one for Bernie Sanders because he voted against the Magnitsky Act. So there's a little bit of question. And he also benefited you know, from some of the bot activity in the 2016 election. And what will your relation be with your cabinet? Yeah. And when you talk to a foreign leader like Putin or Zelensky, will you have other people on the phone and will you want to have that recorded? Will you have it taped so there is no question about what is said? All kinds of stuff. And even just trade policy. I think one of the strengths that Bernie Sanders has, although in this in this race, in this primary, anything that is similar to Trump might hurt you, right? And the funny thing is that Bernie Sanders has a trade policy in some respects that has similar, some similarities to Donald Trump's trade policy. Yep. Uh, that would have seemed like more of a strength prior to Donald Trump taking that on, but it should at least be talked about. How do you think Bernie Sanders is now in terms of, actually, he's second in delegate count, right? Uh, the is he first? I think he's second in delegate count. Uh, he, he, either second or tie. Yeah, uh, but leading in national polls, one of the only two. Can, he and Bloomberg are the only candidates right now with the resources, with the money to run a truly national campaign at this stage. Many indicia of Bernie Sanders being the front runner. How do you think he did? Is the is the first time in his national political career that he is really the front runner? That he is more than sort of the plucky feisty underdog with the aggressive or some would say, you know, uh, I- inclusive of some toxic supporters. Let's talk in that context about what's going to happen day after tomorrow in Nevada. I don't think last night's debate will have much of an impact on what happens on Saturday. And here's why I say that. The In 2008, there were about 116,000 participants in the Nevada caucus. In 2016, there were about 84,000 participants in the caucus. And both about two-thirds of them did early voting because Nevada does early voting. How many people are going to participate this year? Well, what we know for certain is that just about 75,000 Nevada Democratic voters have already participated in the caucus. They have cast their preference ballots in which they rank number one, number two, and number three. I believe they rank just the top three, but it's ranked voting, which is really good for this. They've already voted. Let's, 116,000 in 2008, let's assume that there's similar interest this year, which produces a big turnout, and the population has gone up a little bit. So let's say there are 120,000 finally participate. That would mean that 45,000 are going to show up on Saturday. All the others, 75,000 have already voted. Well, now that means that 75,000 voted before last night's debate. So the Whatever the polls were showing as of yesterday morning, going to be very, very close to close to being right on for those seventy-five thousand people. Mm-hmm. How many of the forty-five thousand who will show up on Saturday watched the debate last night? Well, let's say there's ninety percent of them. So, so forty thousand of them watched it. How many were? How many of them had their minds changed? And the mind... The, the, it's hard to change a mind. 
very hard once to change you, once your you, mind. Once you make a decision, it connects to your ego. Absolutely. And any critique of the idea feels like a critique and an attack on your soul, and you must destroy it or run away from it. Exactly, exactly. So, so Bloomberg, what, Bloomberg, the fact that he poll, has been polling very well, he's still going to do, I predict, pretty well on Saturday, if for no other reason all those people voted, even though I have to agree with all the pundits that the worst performance last night was Michael Bloomberg. He wasn't he disa- ready. He, he was ain't dis- ready. He was the disaster. By the way, each time this happens so many times when there is a CEO or a general who people think is going to ride in a white horse and be a savior. They don't realize that doing that stuff, and beca- and I think it's in part because there is so much criticism, so much uh, making fun of, so much uh, criticism. I, I said criticism already of. Uh, of elected officials and politicians, a cheapening of it, that there is a failure to recognize that it is a set of skills that is developed. It is a hard thing to do. Wielding soft power is a hard thing to do. Wielding power through persuasion, not merely through the ability to court-martial or give promotion or give year-end bonus or fire, that is a challenging thing to be able to do. And for people who haven't spent a life doing it, who've been able to be just hammer-fisted executives for a long time, haven't necessarily built the skills ready to do what you kind of needed to do last night. He didn't, you know, he wasn't even, I think, people's favorite billionaire who's been on on the stage this uh, Democratic primary season. I think Tom Steyer walked away looking better than Bloomberg, and he wasn't even on the stage. No question, no question about it. The... I predict that you should watch for in the next debate and what we'll watch for... I think that they're going to really go after Bernie for his medical records. Why doesn't he want to release his medical records? And if you're a Bernie supporter, let me tell you, you better be praying to whoever you believe in or whatever you believe in, or whether you believe in anything, you better be hoping that he doesn't get sick between now and Milwaukee. Because yeah. if he got if he got sick, if he, if we he should all a, hope he doesn't get sick. If if he if he has a little heart blip, for example, he'll be toast. The uh, because he was never the front runner because the media was focused in such a significant way, both in social media and the bot activity and major media on going after Hillary Clinton because there was this just assumption that Hillary Clinton was the presumptive not only Democratic nominee but the presumptive president, and there was such vitriol and attack on her that the fact that Bernie didn't release his tax returns in the last election didn't get as much attention. The fact that he hasn't released his medical records is starting to get some attention, although I think Bloomberg getting in the race now, entering the debate last night, has again, has served a little bit of a shield to uh, to critique of Bernie. It's protected a little bit. It, it, the funny thing is, I think Bloomberg getting in the race might actually help Bernie Sanders because it means that neither Klobuchar nor Buttigieg nor Biden is consolidating support of moderates, and it meant that last night the most vicious attacks went after Bloomberg and Bernie Sanders didn't get the same treatment Elizabeth Warren got when she, for a brief moment, was the front runner and everybody piled on her. Yep. I, uh, <laughs> I think Bloomberg would have been well not to have, not to have pushed the Democratic National Committee to change the rules so he could participate. He would have done better had he not been there. Yes. He really would have. There would have started being a call. Hey, were you ever able to meet that guy? But I think that's quite not as bad as meeting him. Yeah. And this was my this was my concern. And the funny thing is, like the case he made, like well, I'm a manager. Like his closing statement, not you know, it didn't make you want to sing, right? <laughs> but it's actually, by the way, I've talked to a couple of friends who like that case, who say we just want somebody who's going to 
not light the country on fire, not going to be quite as racist, not going to be quite as horrible, not going to tr- not going to re- appoint judges that try to take down democracy, uh, and you know he can actually manage the country. All right, I want to hear. Let's hear. He, he still has twenty four hundred employees working on the campaign, and that's the thing. In fact, I want to say about the broker convention, and then I want to go. I'm going to talk about Bernie because now they did ask the question about Bernie being a socialist and with two thirds of Americans uh, not liking, uh, you know, saying they're opposed to socialism. And that's different among the youngest voters. But overall, it's true. And that, you know, then relates to his performance among young voters versus his performance among older voters in Iowa. And people in my generation and the generations close to me grew up from the cut their teeth on socialism being a horrible word. Yeah, being, being the Soviets, being the enemy of the United States, being, fo- being, being similar to, not meaning Sweden, not meaning people getting good welfare benefits, but meaning people not having a freedom to speak, people waiting in bread lines. Right. And the folks on the long side of 60 vote a lot more than the folks on the short side of 30. I want to... Uh, let's hear the... Um, Oh, about the broker convention. Let's say that, and then I want to talk about the socialist thing. The challenge of the the broker convention is likely to happen if a lot of these current candidates stay in. The question is how much staying power do they have? Klobuchar earned herself some staying power with her performance in New Hampshire. If she has three bad results... And you, one could imagine three bad results. And after tonight's debate and after the Mexico thing, I don't think, like, Donald Trump could always survive. I mean, you know, Donald Trump did, has done 172,000 things that are more embarrassing than Amy Klobuchar not knowing the president of Mexico. If you, if, By the way, if you'd asked me the name of the president of Mexico, I might have slipped up and not been able to get it during that during an interview. I'm not running for president, but, I, you know, I'm not mad at her for it. But I think it adds to a potential challenge. And if she in Nevada, South Carolina, Super Tuesday doesn't do great, I think it's kind of likely that she goes away. I think so too. But she earned herself but, some staying but, power. But she has delegates, and so exactly she can suspend her campaign because she doesn't have the money and still to hold do on it, to the delegates. But she can still hold on to those delegates, and those delegates will still vote for her on the first ballot, and she then will be able to tell her delegates where they should go on the second ballot. I do. There's enough things on this that I do want to come back to the broker convention idea and all the dynamics. I want to candidate by candidate. Let's play the uh, let's play Bernie Sanders being uh, asked the question about democratic uh, socialism. That's clip 12. Here's the point. Let's talk about democratic socialism, not communism, Mr. Bloomberg. That's a cheap shot. Let's talk about democratic. Let's talk about what goes on in countries like Denmark, where Pete correctly pointed out they have a much higher quality of life in many respects than we do. What are we talking about? We are living in many ways in a socialist society right now. Problem is, as Dr. Martin Luther King reminded us, we have socialism for the very rich, rugged individualism for the poor. Wait a second. When Donald, let me finish. When Donald Trump gets $800 million in tax breaks and subsidies to build build luxury condominiums, that's socialism for the rich. 
When, when Walmart, we have to subsidize Walmart's workers who are on Medicaid and food stamps because the wealthiest family in America pays starvation wages. That's socialism for the rich. This, this is... I believe in democratic socialism okay, for no. working people, not billionaires. Health care for all, Please. educational opportunity all right, Senator, for all. Senator, thank you. Mayor Bloomberg, would you like to, that works the question all, was about was funny. One of the things I found funny about that answer was he'd ended it three times. The first two times he ended it, they didn't make him stop, so he just kept on going, which is very was skilled by him. Uh, let's hear Bloomberg. This is clip eleven on his comments about socialism. Absolutely not. I can't think of a ways that would make it easier for Donald Trump to get reelected than listening to this conversation. It's ridiculous. We're not going to throw out capitalism. We tried that. Other countries tried that. It was called communism, and it just didn't work. So, the, uh, so that critique, I do think now that, and I was saying it before, when, when all of my friends, you and I both were, were Bernie voters in the, in the primary in 2016, uh, all, when my friends, but we also try to just get to the hard part and try to be as truth-telling as we can be, we try to use our best brain on this. doesn't mean we're always right, but we, that's what we try to do. We're not here to help a particular candidate win. We're just trying to be as unvarnished as we can that when I have friends who would talk about uh, Bernie's unassailable vi- vi- viability case, I'm not saying he's not viable, when they say, oh, yeah, he's clearly the most popular politician in America. Yeah, he hadn't been a front runner, and he hadn't been somebody that was public enemy number one by either the corporate press or by the right-wing press or the right-wing punditry uh, or they, even they by did, Democratic they voters. Didn't, they didn't see him as a risk. They were too busy going after Hillary. The fact that he is, calls himself a Democratic Socialist it matters. It, it, it matters. And it's going to continue to matter. And it's going to matter also in a Democratic primary. Uh, I want to get back to the broker convention. So let's look at the. Uh, so Klobuchar is somebody who. The, the argument for her staying in is there are a lot of people who think that if you subscribe to the Matt Iglesias view that we need a boring candidate and just somebody who will be somewhat similar to the largest share of candidates who were Democrats who won in the 2018 congressional swing districts. It was a lot of moderate women that won. That was sort of the profile. And she sort of fits that profile. She was in the military, as a bunch of them were, but that's... And there's still a bunch of people who think, yeah, in a broker convention, maybe you want Amy Klobuchar. Maybe she's the one. By the way, in a broker convention, it feels very unlikely to me that it would be somebody who isn't one of these candidates. Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln was made president, was made the Republican nominee, despite not having like delegates like going into the convention, right? It was on a, after a bunch of ballots. What would be the dynamics of there being a candidate? And I know it's too early to talk about, you know, broker convention, but, you know, it, I, I, it could shape up that way. What would be the, uh, do you see any likelihood there could be a candidate who isn't one of these six who emerges in a broker, yes, broker convention? Yes, I, I can. Okay. I, I can see I could see the Michelle Obama. I think the possibility is right. Michelle Obama. <laughs> she'd be the president. Hey, I'd go for her. Right. So would everybody else. <laughs> she'd, she'd win in the landslide. We'd win North Carolina. We'd change the Senate. I, I think I think it's very unlikely that it would be anyone other than the six people on Why? last night. Well, simply because that that's what people are expecting. Yeah. That's the names. But, but I could see with a total total impasse where Bernie is so mad at all of the other five candidates 
he, including Elizabeth Warren, that he is not going to release his votes to any of them. And the others are so mad at Bernie Sanders that they are not going to release their votes to him that they start thinking, well, how about it? And I can see them saying, well, how about Cory Booker? Or how about Kamala Harris? Yeah. Or maybe even a really long shot, and this would happen if, if he were given a good speech opportunity at the convention in prime time, a Governor Patrick, and I, I confess I would love to see that, there would be a small chance, but, but I, I, if, if I were an odds maker, be pretty long odds. So I go candidate by candidate. And the question is, because normally, right, a field winnows and candidates drop away. The thing that's interesting about this field that I want to delve into is how likely is it that each of these candidates drop away? Let's talk about the dynamics of broker convention. And that would mean that there isn't a clear and obvious winner by the time we get through nearly all of yeah, the primaries and caucuses. Imagine, imagine that Bernie goes in with 30% of the yeah. delegates. That means that 70% of the people there don't want Bernie, or at least he's not their first and choice. And it seems very unlikely to me that he gets uh, 40% of the delegates. Oh, I think it's very unlikely. Right? I think 30% is the best he can hope for. The uh, and by the way, the text line here is nine seven one two two zero five nine seven nine nine seven one two two zero five nine seven nine. Got a text. Bloomberg is a blithering idiot, as my socialist mom would have said. The uh, and, I, and I'll say, I mean, you know, I will comment on that. I don't think the guy's an idiot. He's I, not a blithering idiot, but he 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 just went in there thinking that he was smart, and so he didn't need to listen to all his handlers. Right. And, and he didn't understand. Except that, except that, this except is that tough. The, 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 the listener is absolutely correct. They didn't give their name, so I'm assuming it's Joe Pesci. The, uh, <laughs> I am, except to the degree that I would be an idiot if I went and performed with the New York Philharmonic. Except the degree that I'm an idiot if I tried to translate my success in my Monday night basketball game to actually try to compete in Madison Square Garden playing for the lowly New York Knicks and we would see, oh, how lowly I was and compared to their lousy team. Uh, that he was out of his depth in that arena. We're not all geniuses at everything. In that arena, I would agree that he was a blithering idiot. Uh, well, I would agree that that comment, he, he did enough things to earn that kind of comment. So, so Klobuchar is one who could drop out, but there is still some argument for staying power. Uh, if you, the argument for her sticking in, for her, her supporters sticking with her is like, is basically cross-elimination. And I think that is true for a lot of these folks. Each of these candidates has a strong argument against, and I think actually as a candidate that I will say is the hope. I got the question, does Elizabeth Warren still have a chance? Has she dropped away or does she still have a chance? I think she still has a chance. She's a, I think she has a chance because I, I, I agreed with most of the pundits that if you were rating, not who won, because I don't think anybody won, but that her showing was the best. The uh, and, But your concern, of course, is that enough votes have been cast in Nevada that it's not going to change. That's right. It's not going to impact the polling results That's in Nevada right. very much. It, but it, it still it's might more, be. It's more likely to have some effect on South Carolina, except that remember that South Carolina is in the eastern time zone, which means the debate started at 9 o'clock their time, ended at 11 o'clock their time, and what is really very significant is how many people stick with it after to hear what all the pundits have to say and have to hear all the interviews that yeah. they have, which also are very significant. 
that gets to midnight in South Carolina. So not a lot of those folks are paying attention. The uh, so take uh, take the next candidate. Uh, let's take Joe Biden. So Joe Biden's argument for staying power is he's been the vice president. And you could imagine people saying to him, Joe, if this gets to a broker convention, you might still get it. He might. He has the most endorsements. So you're talking about unpledged delegates. You like calling them unpledged or uncommitted delegates, not superdelegates. Bernie Sanders likes to call them superdelegates. That he might say, listen, I could win the superdelegate vote count. Absolutely. Right. And so on a second ballot, I might be looking pretty good. What I got to do is not leave this race. And by the way, I'm not going to I'm not going to get zero delegates on Super Tuesday. I might do pretty well on Super Tuesday. I might I might be able to come in third or fourth on Super Tuesday. And even after Super Tuesday, people still I'll still have the high, one of the highest name recognition of anybody in the field. And if you come in on if you come in third on Super Tuesday, when there are just an absolute Google number of delegates, you're going to pick up a fair number of delegates. By the way, I want to mention that I suspect that the most significant influence of last night's debate would like to be in California, where California is in the same time zone. Yep. A lot of people watching. Yep. Over 400 delegates to be chosen. It was the first debate that significantly touched on issues uh, relating to Latino Latinx communities. Yep. Which, which has big impact in the Southwest. Uh, uh, before, by the way, before we get away from this subject, I want to talk a little bit about what I think is the, the bum rap that Mike Bloomberg is getting because his money. Yeah. First, the premise is, is it okay for a billionaire who happens to be a born-in-America citizen of the United States to aspire to be president of the United States? And I have to say, why not? Why doesn't a billionaire have the same right that somebody who was born in a log <laughs> cabin? Totally legitimate to for him to run for president. Totally so I'm going to run for president. I am a multi-billionaire. And where am I going to get my money? Well, am I going to go to my billionaire friends? The big danger of campaign finance is what those... The fact that he's self-financing also shouldn't be viewed as a critique of Mike Bloomberg. Exactly. Or, or am I going to do what Bernie Sanders saying, I want everybody to give me $18 a piece so I don't have to pay for it. Well, actually, you should be rejoicing at this man who is willing to spend a significant amount of money, not, not a terribly significant amount of money compared to what he has, because if he's really worth $60 billion and he spends $1 billion, that's less than 2% yeah. of his wealth. No, the, vari the varying shares of Bloomberg stock, It's a highly patriotic thing to do. Yeah. I just think that Let, Let's that. hear uh, Buttigieg's response. Look, cue up uh, clip 13. And uh, and I thought that this is uh, this is almost my response to what you just said. I think he should absolutely be doing everything in his power to defeat Donald Trump. I just don't think that has to result in him becoming the president of the United States. Look, our party has values. We were built around values like uh, making sure we protect working people. But Mayor Bloomberg opposed raising the minimum wage. Our party has a tradition that includes excellent presidents like Barack Obama, who Mayor Bloomberg opposed. At the end of the day, it's not just about how much money you've got. It's what you stand for. And we are living at a moment when Americans are so deeply frustrated with the way that both Wall Street and Washington seem to have overlooked our lives. You know, the, the view from the porch of my one house in Indiana <laughs> is that they can't even see us sometimes. And 
if we're going into the election of our lives against a president who rose to power by cynically exploiting the frustration of ordinary Americans feeling like leaders weren't speaking to them, then I think that turning to someone like Mayor Bloomberg, who thinks he can buy this election, is no better a way to succeed than turning to somebody like Senator Sanders, who wants to burn the House down. Mr. Vice President. And let me turn then to, because to me, the critique of Bloomberg is that critique, right? It's, it's, it can be rich. It just shouldn't be why he's president. And the reasons he shouldn't be president are based on the things he thinks, right? That, to me, is the, is the better response. The other response that I don't remember hearing was what it belies. I mean, people nibbled around it. But what it belies is the challenge of the overall, our overall political structure. What I wanted to hear more of, I wanted to hear more from, from, the, from the moderators. Not like, oh, why? Their question was like, well, uh, Bloomberg's money was good before. Why is it bad now? Instead, say, what does it tell us about the political system that you can become a viable candidate? Because, you, you know, yes, because you've been a mayor of a major city. I don't want to cheapen that. But that's not why he's a viable candidate with this being his very first debate of nine. Uh, this is he's a viable candidate because he can spend five hundred million dollars. What does it tell us about the political system? What would you as president do to address a political system that rewards this kind of thing, that, that incentivizes or makes possible this kind of thing? And I so I was disappointed that those dots were not connected. Just underlines what I said at the beginning of this program, that the, the, big, the biggest losers were the moderators. But I will give you a scenario where Bloomberg might actually survive and this is oh friend i, I think our, emily gillan texted me the other night and said she thought bloomer might be the nominee yeah, in fact uh, in fact i think she can stand up for herself but i think she said she guaranteed it on the next on the next debate he could be better and on the debate after that he could be substantially better which because he is a very bright man and hope and, and he may be teachable and certainly he had not a lot, a lot of time learn. to learn not a lot of time but but he could so the pundits would start saying wow He's so much better. He's so much better. And then when you get to the convention, and, and he's got a bunch of delegates, and he's going to have a bunch of delegates. How big the bunch, we'll see. But he's going to have a bunch. He can say, look, I'm going to finance my campaign so all of the money that normally would be sucked up from Democratic donors can be spent on Senate can races and state legislative races. Can be spent on Senate races, races yeah. and on House races, and on state legislative races. Furthermore, you can count on me, if you will support me, you can count on me telling those folks that normally a presidential candidate would be calling up and saying, give me your money. I will be calling them and saying, give your money to Senator so-and-so or senator candidate so-and-so or house candidate so-and-so or understood local. so i want to go there's there I, I want to keep going through the candidates just to see the dynamic as it might be shaping up so the argument for bloomberg staying power is he doesn't run out of money candidates usually drop out not just because they're upset not because they support somebody else truly but because they literally they can no longer afford their campaign apparatus yeah. they can't do ads but they can't as you said they can't even pay their staff Bloomberg's not going to have that problem. So I think Bloomberg could have staying power. Uh, we already talked about Biden. We talked about Klobuchar. Moving on to, so Bernie Sanders is staying in, right? But there's no chance, like, unless there's Absolutely. a major health he, event, he, he's got Bernie Sanders is staying as, in. As long as he stays healthy, he's in. He's got the army. He's got the delegates. He's got he's got the legion of social media tweeters, et cetera. Uh, he's, he's, stay, he's staying in. Now, typically, 
it is a couple of his features that are both helping to fuel that, right? Both helping to fuel some of his energy, but also some of his features that are helping it him not become the presumptive nominee. There are lots of lefty Democrats, not just, you know, sort of corporate shills, but there are a lot of lefty Democrats who are concerned about the likelihood of an avowed socialist who will turn 80 years old in his first year in office who's had a recent heart attack uh, being elected to the presidency. Right. And there, there are a bunch of people who are who are concerned about that, who think that who, who aren't just, you know, some shilling for Dow Chemical, who think that that might be handing the election or giving the worst chance uh, to beat Donald Trump. Which reminds me, not today, because we want to spend a lot of time, but sometime sure. soon we want to talk about who would be the best vice presidential pick by the various We'll do candidates. that. We'll do that's a good that's a good segment for us to do down the road. But regardless, so because of that. Bernie Sanders, as the front runner right now, both has great staying power, obviously probably the strongest staying power of any candidate. So he's going all the way through to the convention, uh, but also has some features that suggest he might not be able to consolidate the uh, the Democratic electorate. Right. OK, so then we move on. Buttigieg. The argument for Buttigieg having staying power is right now. I think he has the most delegates. Maybe it's time for Sanders. I should have the delegate count in front of me. I don't. But he has uh, by. I think he has 20-something, and remember, he needs 1991. Right, right. But he's, you know, but he's, he might be in second place right now, right? Certainly <laughs> the top five. So, and he is talented, and what has he got to lose, right? And he's got a and, bunch of rich supporters, so he, he might have enough money to stick around. he does have billionaire friends. So I could imagine him having staying power, uh, and, that, and that gets us to Elizabeth Warren. Now, Elizabeth Warren, if we get to a broker convention, this is my hot take that I wanted to offer. If we got to a broker convention, Elizabeth Warren is the one candidate I could imagine. Because imagine if you are a, a, a die-in-the-wool Bernie Sanders activist, right? You She's are, just a lot of people's second choice. Yeah. A lot of people's second choice. But as you put yourself in the shoes of the Bernie Sanders activist, and I don't just mean the bot, uh, and, and I don't just mean the person who is primarily motivated by rage, but the person is like, wow, we finally have a chance to elect a president or at least a Democratic nominee who legitimately says we need health care for everybody. We finally have a chance who's willing to stand up on on just a huge legion of progressive issues and speak truth to power. We finally have a chance to elect not only somebody who just seems like a politician, but somebody who seems like an activist politician for 40 years. Right. Like this is an amazing opportunity. 50 years. And. Imagine you're that person, and it comes to a convention, and you're in first place, right? You got 30% of the delegates, and you start racking up win after win. It gets to Super Tuesday, and you start getting 30s, and everybody else is getting in the teens, and it looks like you got a big lead. It's not like Iowa, New Hampshire. You start getting a big lead, as absolutely could happen. Seems like what might happen. Imagine then it gets to this thing, and you've been and you've been told by a bunch of you know former Nader supporters, you've been told by heck yes Russian bots, the Democratic Party is the enemy. Right. That they were rigging it for Hillary Clinton. And therefore, that's really the enemy. And the true the only true bastion of democracy is something that doesn't exist in either major party. And therefore, that's why the nominally independent, nominally democratic socialist uh, Bernie Sanders is the only person you can trust. And imagine you now get to that convention of that party and they're picking a candidate and they come out and Joe Biden is the nominee. What do you like? How do you feel if you're that person? You come out with with Mayor Bloomberg, who's the nominee. What do you do if you're that person? If you if they came out with Buttigieg or even Amy Klobuchar, what do you do if you're that person? I don't know, but you wouldn't be happy. There'd be all kinds of people telling you, well, you know, vote blue no matter who. 
there been a lot and a lot of justification for that. But imagine you've had that psychography for the last four or 20 years. What are you going to do? I could imagine the only candidate, this is sort of her unity argument that she tried to make in Iowa, New Hampshire, that the only candidate who might be able to hold the family together so that a united Democratic Party and united progressive base could beat Donald Trump might in fact be Elizabeth Warren, and that might be her strongest argument at a brokered convention. And by the way, it made me think that we need to get really good people to be delegates to the national convention because this might be a convention that matters. Yes. I, I confess that, that I have thought that maybe I would try to go to the convention this time because having attended more than one convention and having actually addressed a convention, my, my experience might be worth something. Dad, you wanted to run through very quickly, and let's see if we can put him on a timer. Uh, he said he wanted 45 seconds to no, I said run I through. Might need 60. Yeah, and then you said 45 seconds to run through international, and then I said, "Can you do it in 45?" He said, "Well, I might need 60." Starting, go ahead. Harry and Meghan have been told that they cannot use the term Sussex Royal on products that they are sponsoring. That's one of those unimportant things. Important. Tomorrow is the election in Iran. Keep your eye on that. A far right guy killed nine people and then himself in Hanau, Germany yesterday. Two Diamond Princess people, passengers, have died from the coronavirus, which, uh, but they think that maybe it's finally stabilizing. The Japan Marathon has decided that only a few hundred elite runners will be allowed, which means 35,000 people who had signed up to run will not be allowed to run in the Japan Marathon. And the Pope has come out condemning the exploitation, environmental exploitation of the Amazon, but he has stayed mum on whether or not priests should be allowed to marry in the Amazon region because they're having difficulty finding priests at all. How'd I do? You're fantastic, you're brilliant. Everybody knows you're the best, you're the best. All right. Uh, by the way, we got a text in uh, saying about the pardons that I want to share. It was a really interesting take that I want to that I want to share and amplify. I did want to go through the poll, more most recent poll results that we gathered. Uh, Sanders in the Washington Post ABC News poll: thirty-two, Biden sixteen, uh, Bloomberg fourteen, Warren twelve, Buttigieg eight, and Klobuchar seven. Warren staying even in that poll. Bloomberg going up six, Biden down sixteen, Sanders up nine. And is by that the way, national or just Nevada? No, this is national poll. National, okay. Uh, NBC News poll: Sanders at twenty-seven, uh, even since January. Uh, Warren staying about the same, dropping one. Bloomberg going up five. Biden fifteen minus twelve. Uh, the uh, NPR, uh, PBS, Sanders also at 31. So getting past that 25% threshold. Is that all post-debate? or No, no, it's all before the debate. Okay. It was all pre-debate. All right. All right. So it will be interesting to see. But what I predict from this debate is that Elizabeth Warren will get back into the top three. Yep, I think okay? so. And that gives her some staying power, yep. right? And then you start having, like, I don't, I, I, anyway, I find the dynamics of this race absolutely fascinating. I should stop. I should stop uh, freaking out about it. All right. Let's talk about the pardons, Pop, and let's talk about Bill Barr. Said he's told he's told people he's considered resigning over Donald Trump's interference. At and Justice if you Department believe matters. that, let me talk about my bridge. Yeah, I don't, I, <laughs> I, I don't buy it at all. Uh, today, the judge is going to rule on Roger Stone. That's happening today. I don't think that ruling has come down yet, uh, but that's when they're going to decide if they. Yeah, let's see. It's eleven. It's eleven o'clock 
a little after 11 o'clock in that courtroom. I wonder what time that was scheduled. John Hood announced he would resign as of February 28th. John uh, Rood. Oh, John Rood. What did I say, John Hood? Yeah, you did. Sorry about that. Uh, Rood publicly disagreed with some of Trump's major international initiatives, including pulling troops out of South Korea and Afghanistan. He's not resigning. He's being fired. The fact right. is he's being fired, and he's being fired because he was the one who signed the letter saying that Ukraine had been doing an adequate job in addressing corruption, and therefore they should get the military aid that Congress had authorized. Rob Blagojevich has thanked Trump and declared himself a Trumpocrat. In a press conference outside his home, he said, we wanted to express our most profound and everlasting gratitude to President Trump. How do you properly thank someone who's given you back the freedom that was stolen from you? He doesn't have to do this. He's a Republican president. I was a Democratic governor, and doing this does nothing to help his politics. Well, he just got a Democratic governor to say that. Uh, Trump gave clemency to Blagojevich and community sentence along with a host of other people, including Eddie Bartolo Jr., the former uh, San Francisco 49ers owner and former Wall Street junk bondsman Michael Milken. The text we got in was, we need more pardons, not fewer pardons. Just because Trump abuses the process doesn't mean we shouldn't have leniency and mercy. Criminal sentences are too long in federal courts. Uh, and, maybe I, and I think it's quite possible to totally agree with that. But there should be a process followed where potential pardons are vetted and looked at so that you really are addressing mercy and justice and not payback. Yeah, and I'd say something different. And I, I, don't, so I don't see those I – don't, I don't hear – and what I'm about to say agrees with, lies alongside with the text from our listener. By the way, if you want to text in, the number is 971-220-5979, 971-220-5979. He made pardons, the president made pardons based on corruption to rich white people. Yep. Those are not the people who are getting hosed by the criminal justice system in large numbers. That's right. If we were talking about pardons over folks, yeah, our drug sentencing has been oppressive. You'd, you'd, start, you'd start with the with the five kids who were convicted wrongfully. Yeah, anybody anybody who screwed up under the age of 25, that, anybody that, who was tried as an adult who was a minor, there's a whole host of people, uh, any number of people who couldn't afford a lawyer and their public defender wasn't any good. For whom those five, was it five or six anyway, for whom DDT demanded they should be executed and has to this day not apologized. The... Uh, so, but it, I really appreciated that text because it is it is easy for us to pile on and say, ah, Trump is bad because of pardons. Trump is bad because of pardons. We should be a little more careful about the critique. It reminds me a little bit of the trade policy dynamic. Oh, Trump is bad because he's you know doing trade policy that is trying to change tariffs with China. No, no, he's bad on the pardons because of corruption. He's bad because he's working to soften up the American people so that when he pardons Roger Stone or some other corrupt person, or when he sets it up so a, a future Republican president pardons him, or where, he, where or some family member of his or one of his Confederates, then all of a sudden it's no, no, it's just part of the thing. It's not really political. He just thinks that white collar corruption is not the kind of thing that should end you up in prison. I think it might be the kind of thing that sh should end you up in prison Absolutely. more than like, I don't know, selling marijuana in your 20s. And, and we have to be really careful that whoever is elected president and, and is a Democrat 
doesn't replicate what he has done, where anything that Obama did, he's against. And we have to beware of the anything that Trump did, we are against. We have to look at what was done and could it, be, could it have been a good idea or at least was there a germ of a good idea to follow? Rick Grinnell is, is a loyalist to Trump. A, uh, no, absolutely no experience in intelligence, and he has been appointed as the acting, and the reason acting, because then he doesn't have to go to the Senate yeah. where he would be crucified, yep. as the director of national intelligence. No experience at all, which underlines how bad it was that the question you pointed out should have been asked last night how are you going to deal differently with what the White House is doing now? The that I, we should break any other critical national news you want to blow through because we got to get to a little. I got to do the quick six. Well, I think it's worth mentioning that the House voted 374 to 37 to approve the creation of a women's museum at the Smithsonian. And I would like to know why there were 37 members of Congress who thought that was a bad idea. I think it's worth mentioning that UNICEF has ranked countries for how well they did in helping children flourish. The United States is 39 on that list. The Southern Convention, Baptist Convention Executive Committee has created a task force to see whether or not Russell Moore, the chair of the Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, because he has been critical of DDT, is it costing the convention money? And a big question as to whether or not Hosanna Wong, a woman, is going to be allowed to speak at their June convention because the Southern Baptists do not believe that women should be given any pastoral role. All of those are interesting things to be aware of. Dad, Jeff Bezos pledged $10 billion to the climate uh, to address climate change. Did you see that? I did see that. Did you also see what he spent for a house? No. Oh, yeah, $160 million? $165 million. Yeah, most expensive house ever bought. Yep. But, you know, $10 billion to buy a bunch of $160 million houses. The What I found interesting, though, and I really appreciated the reporting that I saw that uh, put it in this context. Thank you to every reporter who helps put things into context. The richest people in America, led by Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, uh, four of the five of them have pledged, and Bloomberg is one of those. I think he's one of those five. Uh, has pledged to give at least half of their money during their life or at death to chair away, give it to charity. And I forget what they call it, the billionaire's pledge, some darn thing. Which still leaves them with enough to buy groceries. Yeah, they're going to be okay. <laughs> right? No matter how many times you cut, it takes. you have to cut $100 billion in half a lot of times before, I don't know, you can't buy a $150 million house. The question, though, what I find interesting, Bezos is worth $130 billion. $10 billion is real, right? I did a little bit of analysis on $10 billion. The big, If you could get 5% on your $10 billion, if that was, and you just kept the corpus and you only spent the principal. Put this in context, Bill Gates, uh, as of 2017, those are the earliest numbers I could find in my quick search. As of 2017, the Gates Foundation had $40 billion in corpus and had given away $41 billion. The... Uh, 
if you so this this would make it one of the bigger not the biggest but one of the bigger foundations in America to be focused on climate change is a wonderful thing to be focused on. Uh, if you look at the biggest climate funders, the biggest climate funders up to now, I think, have spent five hundred million. Uh, the, uh, the ten billion dollars is a lot of money. Five percent of ten billion dollars is what's been given so far. Is five hundred million? I mean, it's more than one climate funder, so it wouldn't yeah, be he, he wouldn't swamp the field. But it's a significant thing. If he could make five percent and keep the corporate, significant thing. But here's the flip side. The flip side is if he had, he's the one richest person in America, and he is the richest person in America who hasn't joined the giveaway half pledge. So another way to look at it, this simple, if you need somebody to do your simple arithmetic, sometimes I'm your huckleberry, it saved him $55 billion to give away $10 billion of the climate rather than pledge half of $130 billion to giving it away. So who knows? Maybe he'll still do it. Uh, Dad, did you see the news about privatizing the Postal Service? No. Yeah. Politico had an article. I'm glad you reacted as you did. Uh, it, wasn't, it was Fortune magazine. Excuse me. Fortune had an article saying that Trump could privatize the... Uh, the U.S. Postal Service as early as next year. The new leader of the agency, who's going to be confirmed by five people, three of whom were appointed by Trump, is going to make major structural changes to the Postal Service by privatizing and selling pieces of it. This is the kind of thing that should have been asked about at the debate. Oh, let me tell you, when he gave those pardons, my first reaction was... He's covering something up. What is he covering? That's it. That's it. Privatizing the postal service. Holy shit. No, I hadn't made that connection. I I don't follow my own darn rule. The rule is, remember the rule, folks. When the when the president does something crazy. When he does something bizarre, there's something going on, and there it is. Take a breath, scan the room, and see what else is going on that he doesn't want the media to be talking about. If he pardons some really famous people, it's because he doesn't want something else being talked about and it took us until 829 to talk about the postal service being privatized and you didn't even know about it and you always know everything ever since i was born my dad's the strongest (laughs) ah all right pop i think it is time i like that up to the laugh We just got a text. No, no privatizing the post office. Exactly. Privatizing the post office sucks. There should have been a question about the Postal Service last night. People should be making their voice heard about the Postal Service. Absolutely. You know, people like to put a knock on the Postal Service. The it's a post miracle. O- the Post Office is incredible. It's a miracle. Incredible what they do. I, I, I spend 50 cents on a stamp to send something that gets there within 48 hours in New York, for heaven's sakes. And I'll go further. The Postal Service, if the current, if the, if the right-wingers who profess themselves to be constitutionalists were, in fact, constitutionalists, if we were constitutionalists, we would have, the post office is in the darn Constitution. And when it came time, when it came time to develop the Internet, instead of just having that go straight from the military out to the private sector, we would have had the Postal Service help run a national email service so that everybody had good access to it without having their data stolen or without them having to pay ridiculous fees. Uh, that would have happened. And, and without having to scroll through advertisement after advertisement after advertisement. Or even just run the internet line so that we had as good an internet here or as good a cell service here as they do in uh, as they do in Northern European, in fact not even just Northern European countries where they their internet kicks our ass even though we invented a bunch of that crap because we didn't use the, the strong collective power government to do that stuff including the Postal Service. And, and, and folks who keep saying well the Post Office Postal Service Loses money. Holy smoke. 
So it loses a little bit of money. How much it's in the mo- Constitution? How much money does the Defense Department lose? Yeah, does it lose? Or we spend it. We spend it because it's. We recognize that we need a defense. We just recognize postal that we workers need, unite. We need a postal service. Post office in the Constitution. It's America. You want to sell off America? Yeah, actually, they do. Public lands in the post office. Come on now. While we're talking about this, I it's just want to mention want to mention the DDT budget While other stuff. In his in the budget that he's put out, Medicare gets whacked. The deficit is going to be a trillion bucks. And DDT said to a group of rich people, "Well." Who the hell cares? Mulvaney says, well, nobody cares anymore. In the budget, ask for 25% more money for nuclear weapons, 28% less money for cleaning up the mess at Hanford that they're still trying to clean up from the World War II. Got a chat in. Actually, this is from Julia, our intrepid producer. If you ever sent mail to Canada, you really appreciate the U.S. Postal Service takes months for mail in Canada. usually arrives all crumpled up and cumbled up. Both cumbled and crumpled. We're going to be right back with Jake Silverman, funniest guy in Portland. A chance to talk about what he's got coming up, and then we'll do the quick six after this and more of News with My Dad, and we'll have the Portland Mercury. But coming in studio, talking to us right now, Jake Silverman. Jake Silverman, comedian, co-hosts a number of shows around town, including the Brian Time podcast and Comedy is Everything. His first comedy album will be recorded February 22nd at the Fun House Lounge. And Jake, some of the funniest person in Portland, is here in studio. What's up, man? How's it going, dude? Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. You too, man. Thanks for waking up early. Yeah, I feel like uh, we've always just had like meetings about the Brine Time I podcast. Know. So like to come in and just actually talk as people is very nice. It's fantastic. Yeah. So how did you get into this mess? Wh- when was the moment? I was, you know, set of things I'm usually curious about. I don't always ask about because sometimes you can get trite. But uh, when, when people are starting to make their career yeah. in their passion of comedy, right? What was the moment that you said, hey, I'm going to do this? Um, I got my start after I took a trip down to Latin America and I started listening to comedy podcasts and I came back and it was just kind of like a bucket list thing to do. And I did terribly for a while, but I got hooked and that was it. I just kept doing it. So here we are seven years later. The comedy album that's coming out. Yeah. There's going to be live recorded. Is that the idea? Live recorded, uh, two shows this Saturday. It's all crowd work. It's 100% crowd work. Really? Yeah. No. So you're coming. You got no. You're not coming in with material. Not a single written joke. You don't have to do any homework. I mean, I have to. You just have to be talented. I have to be talented. You have had to moment, practice. Yes. Yeah, it's a whole different thing. I don't think a lot of people are doing this. It's yeah. It's not like here's my hour of jokes that I've been writing for the last decade or whatever. This is like getting a bunch of people in a room, making something happen that will only happen one time forever, recording it, and then putting it out. So crowd work as an album. So I've seen it. I saw Kevin Nealon do crowd work, yep. and it was brilliant. Yeah. Right? Like I like like I actually want your comment on where you place crowd work in sort of the pantheon of comedic enterprises. Yeah. But the, but the decision to turn it into an album, because to me it seems like, oh, this is just for this space. It's just for the here and now. It's just for the people in this room. It's not something that translates. It's not going to be the Netflix special. Sure. Talk about that. And maybe that's why you thought nobody's done this before. So there's, there's a gap I can fill here. Yeah. Talk about the process of making the decision to do that thing that's very much here and now and make it forever. 
I think uh, there are a few guys who have released albums. Uh, Todd Berry did a whole Crowdwork special on Netflix. Big J, Moshe Kasher just came out with a Crowdwork album, so it has been done before. Uh, it's just something that I got into uh, that I kind of found like that I was good at, and I figured, you know, why not try it? That's the thing these days is like everything is DIY anyways, so there's no really harm in like, look, if we record it and I hate it, I don't have to release this album. <laughs> you know, shelve it. like yeah, the record like, label's not gonna be pissed. No, no, dude, this is all like independent comedians doing stuff to try to like get themselves out there. But if you come out with something really cool and special, now that's like kind of a calling card. Yeah, and you know, people, it's more of a demonstration of your skills than anything else. You know. This isn't. Yeah, this you, isn't like yeah, my big break with Capitol Records. It's not you. It's not that you spent more hours writing jokes, or that somebody wrote jokes for you as a favor because you paid them. Yeah, right. Like you tested. It's a little bit like I think about call-in radio. Sure. Right? So I I didn't realize this until I started doing call-in radio, and I don't mean here. We usually text in, but when I yeah. I do, I, I sub for Tom Hartman his national show. Sure. And it's a call-in show, right? Yeah. I realize, oh, I get some of this dynamic. It's a little bit of a game. It is. People are watching to see how you do it. Yes. Right. And and. And, and so people, you know, they're going to watch you do this sport. Yeah. How do you practice for this? Just insult people on the street? <sighs> I do. I mean, I've been doing. <laughs> do you do insult yes, people on the street? Yes, I, of Just course. Just on the bus. Right. Just get on the The thing is, line. is like, I think crowd work, I do want to say, I think crowd work gets a little bit of a bad rap because, um, you know, it's like you start off like any human relationship asking very basic questions. What do you do? You know, is this your date? Whatever. Yeah. And I think that's crowd work has kind of gotten pigeonholed into like, well, that's all it is. But it's like, that's just how you would talk to a normal human. You can't go out and be like, hey, Jefferson, like, we never met before, but why don't you just tell me your deepest fear? Like, you have to build a relationship. Yeah. So to me, I view it as like building relationships with these people in this room for that hour and hopefully getting to something kind of unique about them or deep about them and making it funny. The roast thing is part of it, and I think it's kind of gotten bundled into it, but it doesn't have to be. You know, it's it's more about, I think, bringing out something. And I don't want to say, like, because people who are here who have seen me know that I have definitely roasted. I don't want to say, like, I'm sure, some sure, angel. Sure. But it isn't just that. It isn't just like, hey, nice shirt. Da, da, da. It's <laughs> like, you know, what did this room not know about this person that they were obviously willing to share? Because I'm not making them say anything. I'm just asking them questions. They're feel free not to answer. So we didn't prepare this. You can say no. And it's early in the morning. But if we turned on the mics for for Julia and for Pop oh and boy. for and if Emily is still in there, Casey, uh, and then for me, would you be would you be willing to interact with us? Sure. I mean, I don't know if it'll be funny. Well, um, either do I, but yeah. it'd, be, it'd be an interesting exercise. Yeah, so we've got we've it. got a handful of people with mics, maybe three people with mics directly to their faces and two people with it identified. Julia is the uh, is, is the producer uh, right there waving. Uh, the the man standing oh, sitting next to her. people are like, why did you do this is to my, us? Is my dad. Uh, and, then, and then I'm me. Over there is Casey, who also helps prep the show. And in there is Emily Gilliland, who is a co-host of the show and sitting in today as well so that's okay. that's who's here so you know whatever just go in just be funny this is like a this comedian's, is the worst yeah i, I didn't say is, be funny i just <laughs> all right I, because because i know that's the meanest but but how do you even just the approach even if you leave out punchline sure right even if you don't get the funny part but just to demonstrate the approach the, the i mean early, immediately early i immediately now that there i know there's a father-son relationship i would start asking questions to your dad the lawyer the lawyer in me wants to ask a question yeah, ask a question, Pops. <laughs> the question, particularly on Saturday when you're doing with this, what sort of what sort of release do you require everybody in your audience to 
to sign so that you don't have to worry about getting sued. You're released to sign if you got in the air. Either for part of your profits or for revealing their secrets to the world. Well, they do all know that it is a live album. Uh, This is very obvious, but... You're freaking me out now because now maybe I, I no, you no, know, you're fine. If you, we if have you, no idea. Out in public, There's no lawyer budget if, here. If you're so. at a public protest, yeah, and you put a camera to someone's someone, face, right? They don't need to sign a release because they know the they're at a, they, they know they're at a public protest, yes. and they know that there's a camera in their face. Very That's true. not a hidden camera in a bathroom right. or on a train. Yeah. Uh, so okay, so so yeah. Feel free to feel free to ask us questions. We got thick skin. What is your not. What is your father's name? His name is Joe. Is, is Joe Smith? Joe Smith. Joe, how are you doing? Well, at this moment, good, but I'm apprehensive. You sound smart. You just sound like one of these old school lawyers who had a bottle of whiskey on his shelf at some point. Uh, are you proud of your son for being a radio host? I am proud of my son for many, many reasons, one of which is his very good ability as a radio host. Do you think it was a smart idea to let this comedian just start asking his father questions and I, trying I, to find out something on a public on I, the public airwaves? I'm reserving judgment. Wow, you're you're a dapper man. I can't even see you. So we're doing blind crowd work here too. But um, how uh, when uh, when Jefferson said that he was going to get into uh, radio, especially radio where he's also the main fundraiser, because I've worked with Jeff in meetings before where uh, he's trying to get money. Uh, were you like maybe go to law school, maybe try something a little more profitable, or? <laughs> well, actually, he already did that. You went, went to law school, Jeff. He, he I went did. to law school and he graduated. You passed. Magna, he graduated magna cum laude from Harvard Law School, missed summa cum laude by just one grade, and and was hired by a New York law firm. Oh, I didn't for know you a had very, this. Very very flossy yeah. salary. Wow. And something I am extremely proud for him when he went to work the first day having passed the New York bar, he was told that he was going to be expected to help represent tobacco companies. And he said, you know, I really can't do that for two reasons. First, I don't think tobacco companies are doing anything very good for the world, but also because I helped a professor at Harvard Law School do an article on litigation with with tobacco companies, and I think I have a conflict. And they said, well, you know, when you're here, you have to you have to work for whoever Swallow we say. your he pride. Said, well, then I think that I need to get another job. And he walked away Day one? from a very, very, uh, very substantial salary and came back home. Wow. Well, this would just turn into a heartwarming story about <laughs> Jefferson's moral compass, but okay. We're trying we're try, we're try to do Comedy Central and say we went Hallmark. Yeah, we went NPR. <laughs> we, went, we went This American Life. Well, that's an interesting story. Yeah. Wow. And then you just found your way to this basement. And now eventually. I'm in the basement. I've just been going down. Yeah. By, I used to be on higher floors, and I've just been lowering Portland. Five years from now, I'm going to be just in the dirt. Hey, and man, while who says morals don't it, pay? Well, ratted. He Literally came, everybody. He, but came, say that. he came back to Portland. He came back to Portland and was hired by one of the two or three top law firms in Portland for not, for substantially less than what he was getting in New York, but still one heck of a lot of money. And decided. This is just Jefferson's got, story, yeah. life story this about just, turning down after, money. After, this is after, what this has turned into. After he got into. that job, he saw he saw what a disaster the Oregon legislature was. So he started an Oregon thing called the Bus Project, which encouraged people, especially young people, to go out and support progressive candidates, and was directly responsible 
partly responsible and significantly partly responsible for changing the makeup of the Oregon legislature, which has had huge benefit this, to this reminds me. This reminds me of when I was in, uh, uh, this doesn't have punchline. Let's it was, just it give was, it up for this very healthy father-son relationship <laughs> here. I mean, I cannot, we're trying to get some type of dirt, and it's just, oh, actually, he's been a great citizen for decades. He has a moral conscience. It's cost him millions of dollars, you know, but here we are, and his dad is proud of him, and that's what life is all about. <laughs> Thankfully, my wife doesn't listen to the show. She understands why our one-story ranch house is what it is. The It, it reminds me of when I was at the Democrat National Convention, and Steve Colbert, who, before I knew who he was, yeah. started ans- asking me questions, and I tried to answer them for reals, and therefore I was not funny at all. Oh, I just ruined his thing, and therefore he didn't have to use me. Hey, you know, I might ask a father, and he might just be like, no, I'm very proud of my son. You know, we would have moved on 10 <laughs> minutes ago there's no way i would have left you were being polite i would just be like well thank you sir i need some i need a son who's failed at something but uh yeah jake silverman who's shut we're going to bring in alex Zelinsky on the phone we're going to continue the zoo format here listening to x-ray and we appreciate you doing so so much and people should check out the brine time podcast which is hilarious and brilliant and that you can find in various places wherever you get podcasts including on the x-ray app on the xraypod.com the podcast website uh, let's bring on Alex, but not until we've plugged and we'll keep Jake in studio and feel free to ask questions sure. of the news editor of the Portland Mercury, Jake. But just remind people when and where your show is. Cause yes. doing Because this is a chance for people to like actually be a part, like be in on the joke sort of, right? Like yes. participate, not we only watch you make a music video, right. but like be in the music video. Yes, we need people. I mean, this is not going to work if there's nobody there because I can't just talk to myself. Uh, <laughs> or so just dad who or like just dad, tries yeah. to give them a sunnier view of my life story right well you know maybe he'll come to the show and we'll get some dirt on you uh <laughs> so it's this saturday february 22nd there's two shows 8 and 10 p.m at the funhouse lounge which is on basically the corner of southeast 11th and division here in portland uh tickets are online right now for five bucks they're 10 bucks at the door so if you get them now they're five dollars you can get uh the tickets to the link thecomedianjake.com slash funhouse and yeah, we'll see you there. Hopefully, we'll pack it out, and we'll have a good, good, good couple shows. And if we've got if we've got a member, uh, if we got a member who wants to go, the uh, we'll say the first member who asks for a ticket, X-Rail cover your ticket. Uh, and the uh, and so and in fact in fact yeah so just make sure if you text in right now nine seven one two two zero five nine seven nine if you want to go to the Funhouse Lounge to be a part of do we call it a taping. I call it a crowd work album recording because it's crowd work album recording. Yes. All right. Yeah. At the Funhouse Lounge on the 22nd, just text in 971-220-5979. It's 971-220-5979. Or you can also email events at xray.fm, events at xray.fm, and we can get you, we can help get you to the show. Uh, let's bring on Alex Zelinsky, news editor of the Portland Mercury. Alex Zelinsky, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you guys? How are we doing? I'm good. How are you doing, Alex? <laughs> doing great. I uh, appreciate the you know review of uh, Jefferson's history and <laughs> was that funny horrible? past. Something that was supposed to be funny just turned into you oh, know. There's still <laughs> there's still good men out there. There's plenty. We'll see it all. It's, it's, it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. The uh, Alex, have you ever been? Have you ever gone to a comedy show that was focused on crowd work? I haven't, and the idea is terrifying, but also <laughs> I think... Um, I uh, do want to say that not everybody will get talked to. This, there's going to be probably you know between 60 and 90 people at each show. 
you know, I'm not going to get to what everyone. What the terrifying thing is, like, what if no one talked to me? Like, they talked to everyone else. Oh, I didn't know. Like, I, thought, I thought it was going the other way. Your fear is being left out. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that reveals something about you. Uh, you definitely got to go, Alex. Yeah, you got to come. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, well, something we know now, Alex, is there has been a walkout in the, in the Oregon Senate. Uh, where Do you want to talk about that? What do you want to focus on right now? Um, we can talk about that. Uh, I'm mostly I'm mostly following all the bills that have been stalled because of that. Yeah, what's, what's I, so give the background uh, on on what the heck this walkout is, and then let's go through uh, a couple of the bills. We'll go one by one through some of the bills that are getting held up because of it. Yeah, well, the walkout was pretty expected. Um, it's kind of a classic logjam that we were going to see that we saw last time at the state legislature, and here we are again. Um, I mean, you can probably get into details more than I can. I haven't been following super closely the day-to-day, but I know that it has to come down to the, the, the cap-and-trade legislation. And um, with Republicans, you know, doing their classic, we're not coming back to work until uh, you agree to our terms scenario, despite, uh, despite you know, Governor Kate Brown um, not, uh, not really supporting this. And so uh, where are they... Idea. Wait, wait, Governor Kate Brown is not supporting the the climate change package. The uh, no, the the walkout. Oh, she's not supporting the walkout. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah, she's yeah. pushing climate change. The heck, it was in her. It was right, in the state, right. of the state a bunch. And, and this I, is I, the big thing that was everyone was kind of waiting to happen this really short session. Um, and so in you know this kind of stalls any other discussion. And they've gone away. Bill. Dad, Dad, you caught this, right? Did you see where they've gone? Are they taking a plane to Idaho? Did I just see that they're taking I, a flight? I, I didn't see where they went, but I think they've had to leave the state because if they didn't leave the state, they're going to get arrested. Yeah, call of the House means that the that the presiding officer can direct the state police to bring yep. back yep. a legislator, bring them, and bring them there. So they yep. got to they got to get out of dodge. Yep. So I yeah. saw that they had bought plane tickets. So what's uh, and they're doing this I'd to stall this bill. Go ahead. Oh, I, I had also heard that they had uh, they got tickets to Idaho. So what bills... Are we paying for these tickets? No. Political donors are paying for the tickets. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's, it's this Timber Unity group uh, funded by Andrew Miller primarily uh, that is trying to keep costs down for, you know, doing polluting activities. Uh, they're pushing really hard. And these are the biggest donors that the Oregon Republican Party has, essentially. And they're pushing really, really hard against this cap-and-trade legislation, this legislation to put a price on carbon, try right. to reduce our impact on climate change. Must be nice to just get a plane ticket out of your job and still know you're going to have your job back. <laughs> you maybe even gain votes from it. Yeah. In fact, ha- get campaign right. contributors because of it. Hey, good stuff, yeah. guys. <laughs> All right. So what bills... Uh, Alex Zelensky are getting held up because the Republicans in the Senate are running away from the state? I mean, a, a ton of bills, <laughs> and kind of all of them right now. Um, right. I don't think anyone, um, any of the, the kind of leading, more interesting bills that people have been following has been able to um, get passed before this point. Everything's still, you know, um, winding through uh, the House and the Senate. Um, there's a number of, I mean... It's tricky because in short sessions, it's always going to be really hard to get everything through. Um, but this session has been even more truncated. And so, um, and, you know, that's something that Republicans have used as kind of a another, uh, like, point of contention, saying, you know, Democrats are just trying to rush everything through and, and they're not, like, taking their time with things, which is what we're doing, um, even though they're, they're planning on, on leaving the state. Um, 
but yeah, there's a number of bills. I've been following a couple ones that have to do with um, just because I, uh, I cover you know Portland more or sure. less that have to do with Portland issues. Um, there's one that could that the city of Portland's been lobbying behind to um, change some legal rules around the arbitration of police officers um, and the the tools of arbitration used in negotiations with uh, with discipline cases for police officers. So basically, allowing a police chief to um, to choose discipline and for that not to be overturned by an arbitrator, which in, in Portland's cases, that's usually it gets to that case when um, in the most egregious cases, when there's someone's been killed or someone something really awful has happened, that's usually when an arbitrator gets involved and ends up allowing an officer to stay on the force based on their own understanding of... God, there's, um, a big, there's a big public outcry. People say, wow, something needs to be done, and it even looks right. like something's going to be done, but then a clause in the contract says, no, we go to arbitration, and the arbitrator says, well, no, they, they instead shouldn't get suspended or shouldn't get removed. Mm-hmm, Pop, mm-hmm. Pop is waving his hand. And the arbitrator yeah. does that because the arbitrator knows that if he or she rules against the officer, the union will never again let them be an arbitrator. That is one of the right. challenges of private of private arbitration is that you don't have, you're installed as a judge, the litigants don't get to decide whether to use you in the future. If you're an arbitrator, word gets around if you're, if you can't be trusted to do what the litigants want you to do. Right. And it's a big payoff. You, you know, you, it's a, it's a pricey, um, you can get a lot of money from just one arbitration or being hired as an arbitrator. It's interesting. I didn't realize until recently that, that the way that an arbitrator is picked in these kind of um, decisions, it's like the, the state employee labor board gives um, you know unions and, and their management, in any cases, a, a set of five different attorneys and lawyers in the state that can um, work as arbitrators. And then it goes back and forth between the two, between the employees and the employer saying, okay, uh, I'm going to cross this one person off, you cross one person off, uh, cross another person off, you cross another person off, and then like whoever's remaining, whoever's people, you know, agree on the most. Yeah, that's the the one that ends up being. Jake, have you ever had a police officer in the the crowd when you're doing crowd work? Uh, I don't think so, but (laughs) there is a guy who is a retired police officer who does comedy, and I've worked with him before. You good? He does a weird Michael Jackson impression. Oh no! Is there a, no. I don't know. This was this was years ago. Maybe he's dropped some Michael Jackson material. from his uh, from the updated act. R. Yeah. Kelly. Yeah, probably. I was going to do the R. Kelly joke too. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, how do you how do you get? Uh, uh, is there a not weird Michael Jackson impression? Uh, <sighs> these days? Oh, I mean, you can just make fun of like you know what he did and. All right. Uh, but well, yeah, or I could move on to asking what are other bills, Alex Zelinsky. Yeah, let's get to the real meat of this thing. Let's are, get off Jackson and into what, what, uh, what politics. Other, what other bills are getting held up that you're tracking that might matter a lot to Portlanders? One thing I've noticed is there is a bill that's that's potentially controversial around campaign finance reform that's getting uh, that may get held up. What else is getting held up? I mean, that one's interesting. Would you? Uh, mind talking a little bit about it because that's something sure. that I've been following too. Yeah, there's uh, so in the last, it take me a few steps. I'll try to go through it fast. Uh, we've talked about it before. Oregon is one of like five states in the union that has no limits to campaign contributions. So you can give. So Timber Unity, this Andrew Miller guy, can give you know five million dollars to his favorite candidate for Secretary of State, and there's no law. It's just totally allowed. Freedom, baby. There you go. And the uh, finally, there was a push in the last legislative session that almost didn't happen to refer to the voters a constitutional amendment that would allow 
for there to be constitutional, allow there to be campaign finance limitations. Portland with 89% of the vote, excuse me, Multnomah County with 89% of the vote passed limits to county commission races. The city of Portland passed with 87% of the vote limits to city races. But then a judge came in and said, hey, under the current interpretation, the Oregon Constitution, we have, un- we have no limits. And so this would refer out in the last legislative session a vote so that Jake and everybody else could vote on a bill that would allow there to be limits. It doesn't set what those limits are. There's a big discussion, big debate, big argument about, well, what those limits should be and when should it happen. There was essentially mm-hmm. an agreement among a bunch of folks, well, there won't be a, there probably won't be a limits bill happening in this short mini-session that's happening right now. We have two sessions a year, one that lasts about five months, one that happens about one month. This is the one-month one. It's harder to do longer stuff. There <laughs> was, there is right now, the voters of Oregon did pass a ballot initiative to impose a set of limits. It wasn't the constitutional side, it was just the statutory side. That set of limits are pretty darn low. That would go into effect, arguably, if the Constitution allowed limits. There are a bunch of people in power who don't want that bill to come into effect, who want to make sure that if there are limits, they aren't as stringent as those, that there are higher limits, that there's maybe more loopholes involved. And those folks, and so there's a real tension here. There Mm -hmm. is a bill in Mm -hmm. the legislature right now that would delay the implementation of that initiative that was filed until after until you know like about a year and a half from now so that they could pass a different bill instead of that one so that and that bill right now and there's some of the some of the advocates on campaign finance reform are neutral in part because they don't want to offend the advocates for that bill and some of the advocates for campaign finance reform are really opposed to that bill and some think it's good government they well yeah delay it a little bit so that there can be debate that is my quick explanation i'm feeling pretty proud of myself yeah, you hit that on the head. <laughs> people want, the whole idea of delaying something for more debate is just like peak bureaucracy and right. <laughs> right. Uh, and and legislature like madness. Um, even though I understand, it's just uh, it frustrates me. Um, I, I thought I'd touch on a couple other. Yeah, do, do, do give us a quick versions because we got to do. We still got to do. Say goodbye to Jake, and we still got to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Six, so um, well, uh, one bill that's passed through the House that I've been following. Um, would get rid of a policy right now at the state level where uh, residents um, could have their, well, any Portlander or any Oregonian could have their driver's license suspended um, right now for uh, failing to pay a a traffic ticket. Um, In some cases, that's up to 20 years. They could have their license suspended. And this bill would um, get rid of that policy. Um, And and there's a lot of times you have your your ticket suspended for 20 years and, and you uh, you aren't able to to pay for uh, to repeal the suspension right. and then you and then it just piles on it gets worse and worse you get suspended and by the way Jake, yeah, exactly. of the many things you could eviscerate me over I've been one of these people I've been one of these people who's had my car confiscated because I hadn't paid a ticket mm-hmm. in fact it was the, when I, in the early days of the bus project when I was just doing a full time you know full time job and not getting any money and and I mm-hmm. and it just kept getting worse and worse and I got my license suspended a bunch of times it really sucked it sounded like you were on the bus though so that was fine. <laughs> bus project, man. There you, you go. I have a bus rider. Bus. I biked over here. You're fine. <laughs> Alex, one more? Um, one more. One more related to, to buses, even though it's not really the bus project. Um, but I guess the MAX. Uh, uh, Portland Representative Hernandez, who's been kind of pushing an idea for uh, last session, he brought it up again this session, um, is banning uh, police officers from enforcing fare on public transit. Right now, TriMet contracts with um, Portland Police and with lots of other police agencies in the region to 
check tickets. Um, and as we all know, police have more power than a normal ticket checker. Um, and to, when it comes to asking questions and um, being able to hold people, you know, uh, d- delay their, their, their trip or arrest them or ask yeah. uh, questions that have nothing to do with the ticket. Um, and so this would be a step towards eliminating law yeah, it ain't, it ain't stop and frisk, but some of the opponents to the current practice feel sort of the same way. They sort of do yeah. d- do some profiling and then start out, hey, you got a broken taillight, or you didn't, you know, maybe right. you, you have hey, a you ticket. Look, if you don't have a homeless, ticket, let's you arrest probably you. probably don't have a ticket, out. yeah. Well, Alex Zielinski, you are listening to X-Ray FM, KXY Portland, KQAC HD3 Portland, 107.1, 91.1 FM, streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. Thank you so much for being with us, and thanks for your reporting. Thank you. Have a good one. We appreciate you. Let's jump to the quick six real quick, and then we'll say goodbye to these wonderful people. By the way, you are listening to X-Ray. Want to plug again. Want to say thanks to Christopher and shout out to Christopher for winning the ticket to go to the show, Jake Silverman's, uh, what, what do we call it? We call it a crowd work album recording. Yes, this Saturday. This Saturday at Funhouse Lounge. Yep. Yeah, awesome. Well, I'll see you there, Chris, and maybe we'll talk. And now it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I am Jefferson Smith. It's Thursday, February 20th. Oregon GOP lawmakers decided not to show up for Tuesday night session denying the legislature of its quorum. Only five Republicans submitted excuses for their absences. Sixteen did not, including Representative Greg Smith, co-chair of the House Budget Committee. Smith was subsequently removed from his position, replaced by Democratic Representative Pam Marsh. Being a chair comes with an extra set of responsibilities and expectations, said House Speaker Tina Kotek. Not only did Representative Smith not come to work tonight, he didn't submit an excuse. The Oregon legislature is halfway through the 2020 session, and everything from a cap-and-trade climate bill to a ban on coyote-killing competitions are still on the table. Also in play, a new regulation that would require gun owners to keep their firearms locked up when they're not being used. Some residents of Oregon are fed up with living under Democratic control of state government, and they have launched a ballot initiative campaign to join Idaho. The movement is known as Move Oregon's Border for a Greater Idaho. It hopes to expand the borders of the gem state through the inclusion of over a dozen bordering rural counties in Oregon. In total, the greater Idaho movement is looking to add up to 20 conservative Oregon counties to Idaho. Well, if they're anti-Oregon, let's see how that helps them at the ballot. Washington County says it will comply with ICE subpoenas. U.S. Customs and Immigration Enforcement is seeking information on two people they hope to deport. ICE is aiming to circumnavigate Oregon's sanctuary law, which forbids local law enforcement from cooperating with federal immigration agencies. Oregon's sanctuary law is one of the Oregon's is excuse me, one of the oldest in the country. And they are the first subpoenas by ICE in Oregon. Oregon's population is growing faster than most in the nation thanks to our stronger economy, relatively affordable housing compared to the Bay Area. Newly released census data shows Oregon at the nation's 10th fastest rate of net migration from 2018 to 2019, growing at a rate of about 7, 6.9 actually, per 1,000 residents. That's nearly four times faster than the national average. Be careful out there. Backcountry skiers, the volunteer search and rescue teams, have served Mount Hood National Forest for decades. They're being pushed out. It's not clear exactly why. The new unit organized by Clackamas County Sheriff's Office, not clear they'll be as good as the elite rescue teams they are replacing. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. 
You are listening to X-Ray. We have been with Jake Silverman. Thank you for sitting in with us, man. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Pop, it is time for a straw in the wind. If you're ready, plug one more time. They'll do the music, but plug one more time the show. Funhouse Lounge. Funhouse Lounge this Saturday, February 22nd, 8 and 10 p.m. Shows are $5 online, $10 at the door. If you want online tickets, you can go to thecomedianjake.com slash funhouse. It'll take you right to the Eventbrite, and you can get your tickets there. On the corner of Southeast 11th and Division. On the corner of Southeast 11th and Division. A straw, straw in the wind. The Utah legislature, one of the reddest states in the country, has voted to approve a climate change policy addressing recognizing that climate change is real and they need to be doing something about it. That was at the same time their Senate voted 29 to 0 to stop polygamy from being a felony but anyhow there's at least one straw in the wind how should chris get his ticket by the way um uh, he can name it will call sure work yeah all right all right christopher tech make sure we have your first and last name and we'll give it to jake to put the uh, to put your name in will call thank you so much for being a listener and thanks for supporting jake's show and thank you jake so much well pop we did it again and we'll be back on monday